You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit ManagerBP.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. Episode 216 of The Bowery Boys. The Tragedies of Edwin Booth. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tonight we thought that we'd present a tribute to one of the greatest actors of the Gilded Age. His name was Edwin Booth. Now, that's a name that may not be terribly familiar to many people listening to the show right now. Edwin Booth, that is, because in many ways, his name and his legacy as the most famous actor of the second half of the 19th century in the U.S. was overshadowed by a tragedy that faced him and his entire family, brought upon by his younger brother, John, which we will, of course, get to later in the story. He also may not be familiar because, of course, he was a huge star during the era before television and film, and there were just scant audio recordings of him. And it was even before the period of mass photography Mm -hmm. or fan magazines and things like that. So when people wanted to see Edwin Booth, they had to do it the old-fashioned way. They had to head to Mm -hmm. the theater, and they did in droves for many, many decades in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. His impact on New York City is through two principal stages, which we're going to talk about, and then one special organization that he formed in the late 1880s. And we shall be raising a toast to this organization during the show, the Players Club, located in Gramercy Park. We'll not only be raising a toast to it, but Greg and I are even going to be running off to Gramercy Park and into the Players Club, a clubhouse that we have both wanted to gain access to for many decades um, and had never until the, until now been able to go inside. Yeah, you're right. I guess I should have said that we raised a toast within the Players Club. <laughs> and so we're going to take you through our adventures of this wonderful place after exploring the biography of this terrific and very unconventional gentleman. And this gentleman didn't just found the Players Club, we should note. He actually lived there, and he lived out his final years in the club. So when we visit, we'll be heading up to see how Edwin Booth finished off a most remarkable theatrical career. So ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats as we shine our spotlight on the many tragedies of Edwin Booth. (music) 
So this is a rather ambitious endeavor for us to tackle the story of a grand tragedian of the stage. Mm-hmm. But Although we did just tackle the Bronx. We, that's I, true, I think that's we true. can handle Edwin Booth. <laughs> well, why don't we raise the curtain on this story, Tom, and uh, begin an act one. Are you sure you can't fit in another theatrical <laughs> metaphor, Greg? Um, it's not in my program, so why don't oh, we you... just proceed? <laughs> Strike that. Well, let's start the story, not necessarily with Edwin Booth, who was born on November 13th, so we're almost at his birthday here, 1833, but before him, because Edwin was the son of a very famous Shakespearean actor, Junius Brutus Booth, and his mother's name was Mary Ann Holmes. Edwin grew up on the family's farm in Bel Air, Maryland, but his dad, of course, was not really a farmer, more of a gentleman farmer, because he was probably one of a handful of very, very well-known Shakespearean actors of the day. He wasn't out there tilling his soil. He may have been acting like he was tilling the well, soil. No, well, there was a theatrical season. So during the summer, he, you know, he largely had those months off, and he did tend to some crops and sell them in Baltimore. Uh, But for the rest of the year, really from the fall season through the end of the spring, his father, Junius Brutus Booth, toured up and down the eastern seaboard and into this growing nation, playing at great playhouses all over the place. He was very, very well known for playing a handful of Shakespearean roles, especially Richard III. But he also played in Othello and Hamlet and Macbeth. And he competed professionally with a couple of other actors we've already talked about, namely Edwin Forrest and William McCready. And I'm glad you brought up those names because we did do a show a couple years ago on the Astor Place riots. And it's kind of a good companion. It takes place before the events of this show, but it also shows you the impact and power of performing Shakespeare in the fairly new United States here in the mid-19th century. And that Shakespeare was popular entertainment. And you went to see the great actors, especially these three, uh, perform these roles. And then you'd get into heated arguments and debates and even fisticuffs, Greg, uh, with each other about whose performance of Hamlet was better. Interestingly, though, Edwin Forrest and Junius Brutus Booth were friends. And Junius even named one of his sons after Edwin Forrest. So our subject of today's show, Edwin Booth, was named after Edwin Forrest. Junius was a larger-than-life character as well. He drank heavily. It seemed that when he was on, on tours, he would wind up in bar fights. He'd show up drunk for performances, spouting off Shakespeare, which usually ended badly. Drunk Shakespeare isn't that easy, Greg. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Well, the person seems to be blending into the role here. He brings some of his personal life onto the stage. And and his personal life was already pretty incredible. It was it was a scandal that actually brought him to, to the US in the first place because Junius had been born in London in 1796 and he married early and had a son and a whole home back in London. But then he fell in love with a flower seller at the market named Mary in London, and he decided that he would elope with her and sail away to America and start a new life and a new family in the U.S. with Mary. So he got a divorce. No, because that would be a scandal, Greg. (laughs) He simply took off with Mary, told his wife back home that he was going to, um, you know, head off on this theatrical tour in the U.S., 
And instead, he set up a house and started having lots of children with his new wife, Mary, and sent money back home to the old wife to help support her, but all the while leading this dramatic double life. So Edwin and his siblings were the children of the second wife. Yes, they were born illegitimately. And it was these same children who were dispatched to actually keep a watchful eye on father and go on tour with their father to try to keep him in line. Now, Edwin had an older brother, Junius, named after his father. And Junius Jr. first tried out, you know, heading around and hitting the circuit with his father. But Junius just couldn't seem to really exhibit any control over his dad's drunken tendencies. Meanwhile, Edwin had a younger brother, of course, John Wilkes Booth, and he was full of life and a rather dashing young man already at an early age. Um, But he also had a very unpredictable manner about him that made it seem unlikely that he would actually help his dad stay out of trouble. It actually seemed like he might encourage him to get into more trouble. So it seems that Edwin, the middle kid... The sensitive one. The sensitive one, was kind of put in charge of the dad. And it also seems like some of the family fortunes were put on his shoulders as well. Yeah, well, he, you know, he just had this thoughtful way about him and seemed more responsible. He had these dark kind of deep eyes, a bit of uh, melancholy seemed to hang over him. And as a young teen, he hit the road with his father. Uh, he assisted him in preparing for his roles. He was his his road companion. They slept in the same room. He They shared all their meals together. And he really made sure that his dad didn't wander off to the nearest pub. And this was something that was noticed by everybody on the street because, again, his father, Junius, was so famous. And right you know, behind him, trailing behind him, was this young boy with this kind of deep concern look on his face. This kind of sounds like the plot of a Showtime television show, actually. Mm. It's quite a dramatic thing to do to a child. But it was actually the best training that he could possibly ask for. He didn't know necessarily that he was destined for a life in the theater. But can you imagine years spent on the road with your celebrity father rehearsing these roles? He was learning these roles because, again, what was being performed were a stable of Shakespearean productions. And his dad had all the leads. Young Edwin was an actor in training. So when did Edwin first make this leap onto the stage himself and step out of his dad's shadow? Well, his first appearance on stage was when he was 14 in Baltimore, but it sounds like he just got a case of serious stage fright. But a couple years later, when he was 16 in 1849, he got a bit part in Richard III in Boston, but his first real break came in April of 1851. One night when his father was performing Richard III, at the National Theater in New York. And Edwin uh, went backstage to the dressing room and said, Father, you have to get ready for tonight's performance. And his father said, I don't feel like acting tonight. And Edwin was beside himself. He didn't know what to do or what to tell the stage manager. And he, he was pushing his father onto the stage. And Junius turned around and growled, Go act it yourself. So he went out on stage, dressed in his father's costumes, and acted in Richard III. Well, I'm glad it's a versatile role age-wise, because I'm sure it was quite startling to see a considerably younger man step onto the stage, into the spotlight. Maybe they thought he was Richard the Fourth, <laughs> <laughs> Or Richard the Third Jr. 
And he didn't get great reviews at first um, and was always built in his father's shadow. You know, he was always the son of the great Booth. This would go on as he acted for years, especially whenever he would play one of his father's signature roles like in Richard III. For example, even almost a decade later in 1857, when he was playing that role, he wasn't just billed as the son of Junius Booth. He was billed as, quote, son of the great tragedian, hope of living drama, Richard himself again. (laughs) It's quite a billing. And really hard to live up to. And what's happening with his brothers, John Wilkes and Junius Jr.? Well, they're both at this point in the theater as well. And actually, at around this time in the early 1850s, Junius Jr. persuades his dad and his brother, Edwin, to head out to California. Because the early 1850s, Greg, you know what's happening in California. The gold rush. That's right. These are years when hundreds of thousands of people are heading to the West Coast to dig for their fortune. And they, you know, set up encampments and towns, and they needed some entertainment at night. And many of these men had a taste for Shakespearean theater. So the Booths, um, being such prominent actors, decided to head out west and put on some shows. But it was physically very exhausting, especially for their father, who in 1852 was so tired he decided to head back east, but he got sick along the way in 1852 and died on the ship home. And it really wasn't until after his father's death that Edwin and the other brothers would achieve more fame of their own. They were out from under that shadow. So he took this sort of name value that he had from his father, but basically developed a talent that eventually became far greater than that of his father. And he had a different acting style. Edwin had a much, seemed like a, a more somber, um, troubled actor. He seemed to embody these characters and internalize their conflict, whether he was in Hamlet or Othello or Richard III. So when did Booth get to New York? And did he start a family up here in the Northeast as well? Or was it out in California? It's sort of hard to say when did he get to New York because he was performing in New York all the time Mm -hmm. and he would have many residences in New York. But he also lived in Boston, later in life a cottage in Newport. He was a working actor who traveled constantly. The nomadic life. And it was along the way that he fell in love with a woman named Mary Devlin who was acting in his troupe And even though he had always said that he would never marry an actress, let alone marry a Mary, (laughs) they did get married in 1860. And while they were on tour in London, in 1861, she gave birth to a daughter named Edwina in December of 1861. Edwina? Edwina. He didn't name her Phone? Phone? Phone booth? (laughs) No, he did not name her phone booth. (laughs) He named her after himself, Edwina. So he's a rising star here on the American stage. Things are going quite well. Yes, in the early 1860s, he's at the top of his game, and he decided to get more involved in the actual production of theater in New York. And so he took on management responsibilities at the Winter Garden Theater and this is the old Winter Garden. This is, a, this is a theater that was located on Broadway and 3rd. And not, of course, the one that's in Times Square, because, of course, there wasn't any Times Square back then. <laughs> but there is indeed a Winter Garden theater. There were cats up at Times Square. <laughs> but, Famous for cats, but, that's right. But not down 
at this winter garden. While Booth was amassing quite a bit of money putting on these shows and starring, by the way, in all of these shows, all was not well at home because his wife Mary had become quite sick and doctors encouraged him to get her out of the city. So he rented a home in Dorchester outside of Boston to help her rest and recover, but still Mary's health declined. Edwin didn't want to leave her side, but she kept pushing him to get back to performing and down to the Winter Garden Theater. And However, while he was back down in New York, he did fall regularly into drunken fits. So a similar pattern to his, his dad. To his father, yeah, just as his dad had done. And things just got sadder for Edwin, for Mary died in 1863 and was buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge. He was completely crushed. At this point, Edwin, in 1864 was the most famous Shakespearean actor living in New York. And in this moment of his own personal tragedy, he threw himself back into his work because that's where he found some solace. In 1864, for example, he made New York theater history by performing the title role in Hamlet for an incredible, unheard of, 100 performances. His 100 Nights of Hamlet which was achieved to great fanfare on March 22nd, 1865. Although those go down in the annals of theater history as some Mm -hmm. of the greatest feats of the stage, there was actually one performance at the Winter Garden during this period that was perhaps a little bit more famous, or should we say infamous. Just a month before this Hundred Nights of Hamlet, on November 25th, 1864, Edwin got upon the stage with his two brothers. This was the only time the three of them had ever performed. Junius, Edwin, and John Wilkes Booth. The play was Julius Caesar. Junius was Cassius. John Wilkes was Mark Anthony. And Edwin played the most glamorous of the roles, Brutus. The first time that they had performed together, which is notable because Junius at this point had stayed out in California and was really known as like the West Coast booth. Edwin was known as the East Coast booth and John Wilkes was beloved in the South. And of Mm -hmm. course, this is during the Civil War, 1864. So you can imagine how powerful it was to see the three of them here on the stage in 1864 in the midst of the war. Proceeds for this show went to fund the commission of a Shakespeare statue that would stand in Central Park. This would be the first statue to ever stand in Central Park, so it had to be nice, you you understand. And Central Park had just opened. Yeah, just a few years before. Something very curious happened, though, that evening right next door. There was another theater that caught fire during the performance at the Winter Garden. It was an intentionally set blaze by Confederate spies. Essentially, this was a series of arson, a series of blazes throughout the city as a way to distract... And dispirit. Yes, the New Yorkers at what we now know to be the very end of the war. They were not successful, of course, but it's very eerie given things that are just about to happen. Now, the next morning at breakfast, Edwin and John Wilkes Booth erupted into a terrible argument because it had been known at this point who had started the blazes. And, of course, they had different political allegiances. This is why you don't discuss politics with your family at the dinner table. This is a prime example because John Wilkes Booth was banished from Edwin's house because of this horrible argument following the events of 
this conspiracy. So even in spite of everything that had happened the night before, John was still siding with the South. Mm Mm-hmm. He returned to Washington, D.C., where he'd frequented the stages. In fact, he often worked at a theater for a friend of his named John T. Ford that would be the Ford Theater on the fateful night of April 14th, which was after the surrender of Confederate forces by the time. So, many so the pe- war's over. You know, many people were, thought the war was over. Others did not. During that night, there was a performance of the play Our American Cousin. That evening, the president and his wife had arrived in secret and were watching the show and enjoying themselves when Booth slipped into the president's box and then tragically shot him. Booth then leapt to the stage shouting, Sic Semper Tyrannis, or Thus Always to Tyrants. And the reason I wanted to mention that is that that is a line spoken by Brutus in Julius Caesar, Brutus being the role that Edwin played mm. and that John Wilkes kind of desperately wanted to play, but he was in the shadow of his brother. So there's a lot of a lot of levels to this mm. particular quote. But so incredible that he would have leapt from the president's box down to the stage in front of the audience mm-hmm. and shoot out through the wings and through the back door of the theater. I mean, a melodramatic exit for this actor and a man who then became the most hated man in America. That was really horrible for Edwin, of course, because of the uncertainty and inaccuracy of some of the early news. People had just heard that it was an actor. It was an actor named Booth. Mm. So many people confused him with Edwin. So where was Edwin when all of this happened? He was on stage in Boston playing in a show called The Iron Chest. That morning, he got the news of what happened and realized that that was his brother that had done this horrible thing. Edwin had his trunks searched by authorities, and he crept back into New York in disguise for fear, of course, of being attacked or accused. Like I said, he had become equally as hated, and some thought that maybe he had conspired with his brother. So naturally, just almost due to the safety of himself and his family, he promptly decided to retire forever. Imagine, I mean, going from the most famous actor to suddenly despised. Despised and afraid to show his face in public. When his whole job, his whole career was to be in the public. Right. Well, I don't blame him because there were death threats. There was a letter in the New York Herald just a few days later that was addressed to Edwin and said, quote, You are advised to leave this city and this country forthwith. Your life will be the penalty if you tarry here 48 hours longer. Whatever happened to John? I mean, he escaped out the back door of the theater, but I assume he was brought to justice. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, less than two weeks later, he was caught in a Virginia farmhouse, and there was a big standoff there. The The barn was burnt down, and he was shot and eventually killed. This, of course, haunted and hung over the whole family and would hang over Edwin for the rest of his life. So that year, 1865, the war was finally over, Just a few months later after these events, people were feeling quite differently about Edwin. They were looking for reasons for redemption and forgiveness. And New Yorkers seemed to forgive Edwin Booth rather quickly of this association. He went from a pariah to an even more exalted figure in New York society. 
He returned to the Winter Garden stage on January 3rd, 1866, playing Hamlet. This was perhaps one of the most tense performances of Shakespeare that New York had ever seen, at least since the Astor Place riots. Because he didn't know how people would greet him? No, and indeed, thousands had gathered outside. It was completely sold out inside. According to a biography on Edwin Booth written in 1893 by the author Lawrence Hutton, In the streets, as the crowd gathered, angry threats were heard, and though, for the most part, a kind and temperate spirit prevailed, while inside the theater men from every part of the country had assembled. Nine times they cheered him as he entered. Showers of flowers fell upon the stage, and the house was shaken with the tumult of applause. Mr. Booth here took the show on the road, and he received similar accolades in several cities. Sounds like things are better than ever. Well, kind of. There's a big tragedy that's lurking here just a couple years later. On March 22nd, 1867, the morning after a performance, curiously enough, called Brutus, or the Fall of Tarkin, there was a huge fire that broke out beneath the stage of the Winter Garden, and the entire theater burnt to the ground, not only burning this principal stage of Edwin Booth, but incinerating Booth's entire private wardrobe, which mm. was stored there. And that's very key because back in the day, actors carried their costumes around with them and wore them in repeat performances and for several roles. They, and they were known. They were famous for mm -hmm. wearing these. So he was losing part of his entire look. Less than two years later, he would build another stage, a grander stage, and one branded with his own name. The Booth Theater, which sat at 6th Avenue and 23rd Street, opened on February 3rd, 1869, with the performance of Romeo and Juliet. Now, 23rd and 6th. So, right there where today, I believe, there's a Best Buy on the <laughs> southeast corner. Yes. Now, we're not going to get into all the drama behind this, the theater. Because it, it was a, a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a huge deal. I mean, just a block or two over, you know, the theater district was developing between Union Square and Madison Square. Mm -hmm. So, it was closely situated to that. And this this would have been right at the top of Ladies Mile. Right. So, that you're getting to kind of what the problem became. Because quickly after it opened... The department store district developed along 6th Avenue and 5th Avenue, what we call Ladies Mile. Uh -huh. And so on top of that, then the elevated train went up and down 6th Avenue. Rumbling by. The neighborhood changed so drastically that it became more difficult for this stage to operate. And it was already a huge, massive, difficult place to manage. It was very expensive. It had all of these revolutionary inventions, including innovative stage lighting and air conditioning. Even sets that could be lifted by hydraulics from underneath the stage. So it was a huge undertaking to even put on a show. But worth noting that Edwin himself was so successful as an actor that he paid for most of its construction by going on tour and selling out his own performances of mm -hmm. Hamlet and other big productions just to send the receipts back to his business partner to build this yeah. booth theater. Well, the theater eventually left his hands and then it eventually closed and became a department store. Today, the building that's there is a completely new structure, but there is a plaque on it that honors the theater that originally sat there. 
And during this whole drama with the Booth Theater, he did remarry again to another Mary, this time Mary McVicker. Uh, They married in 1869. The next year in 1870, uh, she was giving birth to a son who died during childbirth. And it's believed that that led to her mental instability. And she died after a very long bout with mental illness in 1881. So the 1870s were not very easy years for Mr. Booth. But in spite of some of these horrible events and misfortunes, an idea would sprout in his mind that would eventually change not only his own life and his own fortunes, but would actually change the acting profession itself. We will visit Edwin at the Players Club after this break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So we're now in the 1880s, and Edwin Booth is in his 50s. He's still performing all over the country. One of the most esteemed, acclaimed actors in America, if not the greatest actor in America. But this particular esteem and respect is not being carried over to others in the acting profession. Even in the 1880s, people considered actors to be second-class citizens, lascivious characters, bawdy people, rather unfinished types. Another aspect of this is that actors, generally speaking, didn't make a ton of money. Only the very, very, very tip top of the actors made enough money for a living. So there was also a class divide. So Booth was clearly an exception because by the 1880s, he was was very wealthy. Very wealthy, right. But he wanted to give back to this community. He loved actors. He loved the stage. So what he essentially wanted to do was lend some of his esteem and his worth upon the fellow actors, upon the whole profession, and grant them entree into the upper echelons of the Gilded Age. Well, that sounds very benevolent of him. There's a little bit of a self-serving reason behind this, because uh, this generosity would become a monument to his own fame in a way that the Winter Garden and the Booth Theater had not been, because you know the Winter Garden was gone and the Booth Theater was out of his hands. So what he decided to do was to form a social club, an organization like many social clubs of the day, mm-hmm. that would be called The Players, or The Players Club, with an objective to foster, quote, the social intercourse between the representative members of the dramatic profession and of the kindred professions of literature, painting, sculpture, 
and music. So he was looking to bring all these people together under one roof to all of their benefits. Yes. And what he wanted to do is bring them together in one of the most respectable neighborhoods. So he turned his gaze to Gramercy Park in 1888. That sounds great for all of the actors, but how did the the refined folk sure. of Gramercy Park react to the fact that all these theater people were mm-hmm. going to be moving into their neighborhood? Well, again, had it been anyone else but Edwin Booth, um, this would have been rejected and probably like pushed out of the neighborhood. But he had such a sterling reputation, and some of the members of the group would be from ancillary and thus more respectable professions, such as literature, that this all combined to create an organization that indeed, perhaps if not respected by some of the neighbors, was at least tolerated. Mm-hmm. In particular, he eyed an old brownstone at 16 Gramercy Park South, which he purchased and then renovated into a social club. And it was renovated by none other than perhaps one of New York's greatest architects, the infamous Stanford White. And yes, we have an entire episode on the lifetimes and death of Stanford White uh, that we recorded last year. It was because of his participation in this, one of the reasons that neighbors lowered their guards a little bit, because it was Stanford White. He's one of the greatest architects in the city, so it must be an acceptable club. So when did the club open? Opening evening was New Year's Eve, the very last day of 1888, and it opened with a ceremony that included all the members drinking from a loving cup that had been owned by Edwin's own father, Junius. All the members. Who who were these members? Well, here's some criteria. Okay. Uh, they were mostly Americans or foreigners who had spent a long duration in this country. They were only men at this time who were over 21 years of age with some connection to the arts, even if only a patron okay. or an enthusiast. You can almost picture from that profile, I think, what a typical evening here might be with all sorts of cigars and whiskey and late night conversations about Wall Street and such. (laughs) Yes. Um, But some of these... Some of these men were artistic themselves, while others were patrons, That's supporters the, yeah. of the art. This was really key to its success, is having these kind of quote-unquote outside men who just appreciated the theater and then could help fund and promote it. Uh-huh. Um, so one of the founding members, in fact, was General William Tecumseh Sherman, the general in the Union Army who enjoyed the company of theater folk. Now, other members of the club during Edwin's lifetime included, perhaps most famously, Samuel Clemens. Mark Mark Twain. Twain, You know, a man who loved his billiards. Other members included financier J.P. Morgan, the inventor Peter Cooper Hewitt. Now, after Edwin died, there would be even, of course, many, many, many more iconic names that would be members, including... George M. Cohan, Eugene O'Neill, Gregory Peck, the list goes on and on. Great names of theater. And indeed, yes, later, much, much later, women would be allowed in as members when Helen Hayes in 1989, so a, a century later, became the first female member. Today's members range from Angela Lansbury to even Jimmy Fallon. And many of these people are featured in portraits that are hanging on the wall alongside a large number of paintings of Mr. Edwin Booth himself. 
But Mr. Booth was not just here at the club in portrait form. He actually lived in the club. Yes, part of his intention when opening the club was also to give himself a residence, which makes sense since he bought the entire home. You it's know, a, it's and a big house, yeah. And handed it over. I find a couple things incredible about the very end of his life, you know, the very late 1880s. He was still only in his 50s, in his late 50s. And yet all of this work, all of this touring, all the energy that he had brought into his performances, and then, yes, years of drinking and suffering and tragedies had really taken a toll on him. By this time, he was suddenly looking and acting much older than you would have thought. Physically, he was having a harder time moving around, yet incredibly, he was still giving some performances. He did give his final performance in April of 1891 in Hamlets, this time at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in its original location in Brooklyn Heights. After that, for the most part, he retired. He found it just too physically strenuous, so he spent a long time in his private quarters, his private apartment at the Players Club. Two front rooms overlooking Gramercy Park were his, and here he would pass his final quiet years, while a whole community of actors and patrons lived on beneath him. I think it's time for us, Greg, to head to Gramercy Park. We're walking along the southern side of Gramercy Park. It's a lovely day. It's near rush hour. However, around here, it's still as charming as ever. And we are meeting up with Nicole and Patrick Kelly of Top Dog Tours. Hello, Nicole and Patrick. Hi, guys. Hello. How are, how are you? Fine. We're... Thanks for, thank you for meeting us. Lovely day for a tour of Mr. Booth's yes. um, old digs. It's such a beautiful home, yes. Can we go up and see how he lived? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go right now. So we're heading across the street to beautiful doors. Thomas door, it's huge. Okay, so we're checking in. Hello. Making our way up the red carpeted stairs to the first landing. There's a grand piano and the room that is surrounded by beautiful works of art. This is like an art museum in here. Uh, it is. Actually, one of the original intentions was to create a theater museum because that didn't exist at the time. So definitely turned into a theater and art museum. Some priceless pieces of art in here. Including several pieces depicting Booth himself. Absolutely. We're standing in front of the fireplace right now, which was something that was kind of fixed by Stanford White. There obviously were no drama masks on this when it was a private residence. And above uh, is a picture of Junius, Booth's father, uh, who was really known for playing Richard III, and there's a picture of him depicting Cardinal Richelieu in there. Uh, and moving into the front room over here um, is the Kinsler Room, which is named after a player, Everett Raymond Kinsler, uh, who is a very famous artist known for portraits. And uh, on our left above the fireplace is a picture of Edwin, which is the only picture in the room which, which was not painted by Kinsler. It, it's a reproduction of a John Singer Sargent portrait. Uh, what six seven feet tall it's extremely tall but even just at the scale that you're looking at him it makes him look like this kind of very masculine tall figure but right. in reality he was a pretty short guy he was only about five feet tall I, I kind of like to associate it with like you know Tom Cruise syndrome mm -hmm. making making actresses stand in holes to make himself look taller than than uh, <laughs> than himself 
it's interesting that you're mentioning a, a modern actor because mm. what's fascinating about this room is that it's not just these Gilded Age paintings. You have um, a drawing of Carol Burnett. You have Tony Bennett. You have Catherine Hepburn. So it's a it's a mixture of modern and legacy members. These were members. Carol Burnett and most of the art in the club was is portraiture. So all of the actors uh, depicted are all former members. And we're talking about the art that's in the first room. If you're looking from Gramercy Park South and you're looking up, it's the first level up from the street facing the park and it's the one that you see all lit up aglow at night if you're walking past with fancy parties and right off of this room is is a balcony overlooking the park yes i've always wanted to be on this balcony greg (laughs) you always walk by and with people drinking champagne or fabulous cocktails on this balcony. Yeah, this is definitely a popular place for members and guests to hang out. This is one of the additions that Stanford White did. And right below, there are two gas lamps. And there are two of the very few that are left in New York. So those were additions both put here by Stanford White. Uh, It's also great to hang out because you get a really great view of the park, which we know is very, very exclusive. Right. Um, And if you uh, turn to... Is this as close as we're going to get to the park? At the moment, (laughs) yes. um, Unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, But it's a lot closer than most people are able to get. If you take a look to your right, you'll see these stained glass windows right here. That was also an addition uh, that was put in by Stanford White as well. And then inside the room, past the doors, above that cabinet, are um, also windows that Stanford White put in. I I see in that cabinet that you're pointing to, uh, I see a sword. I see what look like theatrical props. Uh, That's very true. Most of the club is actually decorated now with former props that Edwin Booth or other famous actors had used. Also a lot, especially when we go upstairs, you'll see a lot of Edwin's costumes displayed in cases as well. Interestingly, like most of the props here tend to be weapons. It looks like the arms and armory section at the museum. Well, he was playing a lot of tragic heroes, right? There are a lot of weapons in these Shakespearean roles. And uh, speaking of tragic, in that same cabinet and those pull-out drawers are actually death masks. Uh, So this was a very popular thing in the Victorian era. We didn't have photographs uh, for everybody. So it was very popular to create these death masks as a memento or a way for artists to later create a portrait so they knew what people looked like. And these death masks were made by Lane Plaster right onto the face of somebody after they had died. Yeah, probably immediately. Hey, Tom, let's go take a look at one. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Patrick has just slid open one of these doors, and we're looking down at five faces. Yeah, most of them were not members of the club, at least down in this section. Um, Some of them, like this one, were gifts to Edwin Booth of either famous actors or famous uh, Mm. socialites or people who really affected, uh, you know, history in some way. Right, these are David Garrick, who lived in the 18th century, Edmund Burke. It's a little Um, bit... Spooky, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's the past staring back at you from a shelf that we can now close. And not not even just the past, but some of the probably the most famous faces of the past. Yes, definitely. So this room right here, when Edwin was alive, the club was open and people were hanging out here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he really wanted this place to be a place of uh, joy and happiness. Uh, You know, he never complained about noise. He actually wanted people to shout and sing, and hence why the other night when uh, there was a a very large celebration for somebody's funeral and people were here singing show tunes. In a way, it's uh, one of New York's oldest running parties. Wild parties, right? (laughs) It's still running to this day. The club itself has a lot of social events for its members. It also makes sense uh, that Edwin 
would want it to be lively and happy down here because his life saw so much tragedy. It's fitting that he would want to end his life in a happier place. I mean, absolutely. I've been told that Edwin lived his life with three burdens. One, that he was a bastard. Two, that, you know, of course, the assassination of the president from his brother. And three, the fact that his wife had died uh, so early. So, Mm. you know, these kind of burdens he carried with him his entire life, which unfortunately made him a bit of a depressed man. But that's probably what made him such a fantastic actor was because he kind of carried the sadness and depression with him throughout. And I have to ask you, as we're walking up the stairs, we do hear, it sounds like there's a play being rehearsed in the other room. Is There are big heavy doors that are shut on what appears to be a theater, yeah, yeah. and there's a rehearsal underway. Yes, um, I believe it's some sort of Shakespearean group. There is a theater in the club that can be used for members uh, as a place to hold rehearsals, uh, as well as there's concerts and special guests. A couple of days ago, they had Alice Ripley do a cabaret in here for Halloween. There was a big party, so it is still an active space where there can be readings and things like that. So it's not unusual. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Continuing up the big red staircase. Even want to mention, too many faces to mention. I know, right? Leonard Bernstein, Bernstein, walking by Toscanini, Bert Bert Lahr. Angela Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. Lansbury. Uh, Al Hirschfeld. Al Holbrook. Okay, we're just rounding the staircase here. And what's before we head up to the apartment, what's here in the back of, of the third floor? Yes, in the back, back into the left is the card table room where Mark Twain's poker table actually sits. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, th- so that would be a, a scene of cigar smoking and, and lots of card playing. Absolutely. I mean, the club itself was a males club all the way up until 1989. It wasn't until then that uh, they actually started to allow women to be members of the club. And then over this way, we're passing all these glorious portraits to peer, it appears to be a old library. Yes, uh, this is actually one of the best theatrical libraries in the country. And you have a cool, uh, few interesting things in there, some pictures, some busts, as well as a letter that Edwin Booth wrote to the people of America apologizing for what his brother did. Wow, that is an incredible library. It looks like it's, it's completely devoted to theater. It is, absolutely. One of the best ones in the country. Oh, that's great. And then there's a small door here before we walk up to, to the apartment floor. Yes, this is actually, as the plaque says, the room where Actors' Equity was created, which is the oldest theatrical union for actors in the country. Yeah, my favorite part of this is the plaque is, in this room during the first three months of 1913, there met, without permission, the small committee of four or five, which ultimately led to the formation of the Actors' Equity Association. The without permission is the best part. As well as the little (laughs) Shakespeare door knocker on there, too. (laughs) Let's head up to the fourth floor. Yes. Oh, there's Mark Twain over there. Yeah, oh, that's a great one. I like how Mark is just four down from <laughs> Carol Burnett. <laughs> hey, they're both, I think she won the Mark Twain Prize. That is oh, well, no, no, wait, we're, we're passing a case with costumes. Were these Edwin's costumes? They were, and as you can see from how small they are, as we said downstairs, he was a very short guy. Yeah, you can see um, they're all labeled at the bottom, all of the different characters they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Hamlet, you have Othello, you have Richard III, you have Iago. 
Right. So these were his uh, big roles. Of course, back in the day, uh, actors would have their own personal costumes and they would carry them with them from theater to theater around the country. So these were his personal costumes that were built. No matter what production he did of Hamlet, this was his costume. He was he known wear. for this costume. Absolutely. He did 100 performances in a row. <laughs> Booth. Okay. Booth room in the front of the building. We're opening. Oh. It's dark and a little ghostly. We'll step in. It has the ultimate in old museum smells in here. So we're stepping right into a dining and sitting room, I guess, a living room, and to the right is his bedroom. This was his entire living space. You are literally stepping into the past. The only two things that have been changed to this room since the day Edwin died are the museum curtains to keep the light off of these artifacts and the wreath to the left of the bed, which is from his funeral. So this has not been touched. And you can definitely tell by the smell. I think that's the thing that's most striking to people when they first walk in here. It smells old. So it's kind of interesting. It's not really a Dusty smell, per se? Dusty it's, it's and smoky. Smoky. Yeah, <laughs> it's smoky. Uh, Edwin was renowned for smoking multiple cigars and cigarettes and tobacco, especially out of pipes. Uh, there are tons of different pipes that adorn the room. Uh, there's a very large pipe over here. I'm not sure what he was smoking out of that. But <laughs> yes, uh, there's even a quote uh, about smoking above the, uh, at the very top of the end of the room. And part of it reads, you know, vanity, worldly stuff, gone with a puff. Thus, mm. think and smoke tobacco. It's a, it's a dark room, right? Every, I mean, that, that's something that's really striking. We walk in and it's got this kind of dark floral wallpaper and marble on the walls, marble dark m- mantelpiece and, and rugs on the floor and hardwood floors and leather armchairs. It's a dark and rather somber scene. And such a curious assortment of artifacts sort of strewn randomly throughout the room from uh, skulls, which were assumably used in productions, to odd canes in the corner, curious decorative boxes and uh, things under glass on the table. So speaking of skulls, there is a skull sitting on a bookshelf over in the corner. Does it have like runes or like scribbles or signatures on it? There's a signature of Edwin Booth. So Edwin actually signed the skull. He did. And he used it in Hamlet. Uh, This is for the uh, Yorick scene. Uh, You know, alas, poor Yorick, I knew thee well. Apparently. This is a real skull. This is a real human, human Yeah, this is a real human skull. Uh, apparently, the story goes, uh, this was a horse thief who was such a fan of Edwin Booth that his last dying wish was that his skull be used in a production of Hamlet by him. So a couple months after he died, the skull was mailed to Edwin, and uh, he decided to actually use it. So this is the skull he used for those 100 performances. I mean, I've heard of fans making mosaics and collages, but this is ridiculous. I've I've heard of fans losing their head for theater. Literally losing your head for theater. But surprisingly enough, just in case this one wasn't up to the performance, there are two understudy human skulls also in this cabinet. Oh, my God. So in the middle of this room is a is a wooden table with four chairs and a f- could you explain what's on the table? Yes, there is a pipe because as we mentioned Edwin loved to smoke and there is a bronze cast of Edwin's hand holding his daughter Edwina's hand. Now his first wife died very young leaving him with a very young daughter and her picture's actually above that cabinet where the skull is and uh, she was very very close with him and um, if you look across over here to the other side of the room to the left of the bed is a cot and as he was ill she would actually spend the night here to attend to her father. 
So this was the room that he convalesced in in the early 90s when he began to get quite sick. And he. this was also the place where he died in June of 1893. With, and his, with his daughter. With his, his daughter by his side. And the room perfectly preserved, as we've said, in exactly the way it was when he passed out of this life. There were fans who were gathered out on the sidewalk in front of Gramercy Park, waiting for any news of his health, hoping that he would recover. And it was left to the staff of the Players Club and to the the doctor who was attending him to wave to the crowds in the street to let them know that Edwin had passed on. Tom, since we're literally in the place where Mr. Booth passed away... Looking at his bed. Yeah, let me read three paragraphs from the obituary that ran in the New York Times. Edwin Booth, the well-known actor, died at the Players this morning at 1.17 o'clock. For several days, he had been growing weaker, and for some time before the end came, all hope of his recovery had been abandoned. It was, as Dr. St. Clair Smith, the attending physician, had predicted, in a heavy, painless sleep that Mr. Booth's spirit passed away. Mrs. Grossman, Mr. Booth's daughter, had maintained for hours a silent vigil, knowing that the end was inevitable, and fearing to move away from the bedside, lest the last moment should be in her absence. Her devotion was rewarded. It was in her arms that her father died. It's kind of amazing that these two rooms still exist. And, and I guess it's a, a telling tribute to the person who many people considered to be one of the, the greatest, if not the greatest American actor who ever lived. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's really a testament to the players over the years to have preserved a lot of these artifacts and preserved these rooms. And to reinforce what you just said, you know, this this room is closed to the public and the whole club is only open to the members except for the tour that you are all have just started running, yes. correct? We actually, it's a recent addition to our roster of tours and we have exclusive rights to bring the general public into the building. Well, thank you so much for taking us in to see the Players Club and for bringing us to this very very historic and theatrically significant room. Yes, thank you so much for uh, having us on your show, and we'd love to uh, you know, come back and show you around New York again. And a special tip of the hat, and thank you to Mr. Booth. All right. Let's head back downstairs and out to Gramercy Park. Well, that was a great tour of the Players yeah. Club. We hope that you enjoyed that, and we'd like to thank again uh, Nicole and Patrick Kelly of Top Dog Tours. You can visit them, of course, on their website. TopDogToursNYC.com But today, the legacy of Edwin Booth does live on in a few different spots around town. There's, of course, the Players Club at Gramercy Park South. There's a statue of Edwin that was placed in 1916 inside Gramercy Park, and you can peek into it uh, from the southern side of the park. You can go to the Booth Theater and the Winter Garden Theaters in the theater district in Times Square. The Booth Theater is named for him, although he did not have any direct association with that particular place. You know, by the way, this story that we've just told you is summarized in our book Adventures in Old New York. We talk about Gramercy Park and Edwin and the Players Club in one chapter. And we're going to start bringing this up on the show again because now that the holidays are right around the corner, this is a pretty great uh, stocking stuffer for a big old stocking. But (laughs) uh, (laughs) That's that's a lot of stuffing. (laughs) Then, of course, 
You can visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have pictures of Edwin Booth, images within the Players Club that we took during our visit, and other things that are associated with Mr. Booth, including a clip of a rare audio recording. Also visit us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And as Greg mentioned at the top of the show, I just have to give um, some kudos to you, Greg, uh, for now producing a show every week. You're doing a Bowery Boys with me every two weeks, Mm -hmm. and then a new episode of the first on alternating weeks. So there's already a second episode out there and a third that's coming. For next week, yeah. you You know what it is? I do. All, all I will say is this one's firmly set in the 20th century, where the first two were set in the 19th century. Uh-huh. And it's a very delicious tale. Can't wait. Mm. Look for that wherever you get podcasts at the first. And subscribe to both so that you don't miss a show. And one historical side note that you might find fascinating later as time goes on. We recorded this on Election Day 2016, <laughs> having distracted us from CNN Politico and other news outlets in order to talk about the great 19th century tragedian Edwin Booth. (laughs) Thank you, Edwin. Thank you, Edwin. And thank you to our patrons who support us through Patreon.com and are the reason that we're able to produce all this extra material. So our thanks go out to them. We'll have a booth-related extra waiting for those supporters. The full tape of our trip to the Players Club will be available to our patrons. Thanks so much for your support, and thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.